Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. This episode is part of a limited series featuring CTOs in the greater Seattle area. We will be digging deeper into the challenges, opportunities, innovations, and the future of tech. Who better to lead these conversations than Fuel Talent's very own Albert Squires and Derek Stevens? We hope that you enjoy the CTO limited series of the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Ward Villamont. Ward is currently the CTO at RealSelf, where he oversees product, design, engineering, data science, and analytics, as well as IT and customer support. As a person with high-functioning autism, he is more surprised than anyone else that he's found his vocational calling leading others remotely. He has successfully worked 100% remotely from his home in central Washington for the past six years. Previous employment includes Boeing, Amazon, Xbox, and other companies in a variety of roles spanning aerospace engineering to technical Japanese interpreter to software engineering to product management and technology leader. Ward currently lives in Manson with his partner and their two great Danes. Excited to hear about those guys. Uh, he's also working on a book right now aimed towards technology leaders on how to build their high functioning organizations by creating psychologically safe environments built upon EQ, kindness, and clear communications. He's looking forward to a post-COVID world where he can once again attend NorwestCon and exhibit his artwork. Welcome, Ward. Hi, Albert. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You know, I, I am excited. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I've always looked up to you uh, and your ability to be a remote leader. I, you know, as a side note, my mom uh, is basically neighbors with Ward out in central Washington. And so I've loved being able to grab a coffee when we head over to Chelan and kind of hear the story. And so uh, looking forward to kind of diving deep uh, into this, this spectrum. So. Uh, like all of our episodes, though, uh, let's jump right in. We start off with some rapid fire, just so uh, the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So uh, let's start with morning or night person. I am a morning person more than a night person. That's surprising. The average software engineer, not to uh, generalize, <laughs> but uh, it seems like 90% are, are night people. So that's, that's good. I, I'm right there with you, best sinking in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up uh, delivering a newspaper as a child. I say it's a child, but, but I was a young teenager and I get up really early in the morning and I just learned that was a really great time to think. Uh, mm -hmm. The world was really quiet. So I actually don't wake up that much early anymore, but I am probably more of a morning, morning person, at least in our household. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah, relative totally. nowadays. 100%. Now, this I know is uh, right up your alley Masters in Computer Science versus obtaining a, a bachelor's and going directly into the workforce. What would your recommendation be for somebody who's, who's starting out? That's a really hard question. I think so much has changed. I know this is supposed to be a quick answer. 
I would say, I, can I pick depends? Can I say it depends on what totally. you want to do? I, I tend to think if you can get some of your education out of the way because it's such a hard commitment um, and slice of your life when you're sort of more free, don't necessarily have the commitments of family. So education, front-loading education, if education is an important part for you in your career, then I would, I would argue generally trying to at least minimally get your master's before you go off into the work world, um, yeah. especially for something like computer science. If it's an MBA, I would argue you probably want a few years of experience um, before you sort of pursue an MBA, in my personal opinion, so. Yeah. That makes, that makes complete sense. If you were to build a startup from scratch, day one, what language would you choose and why? Mm. I think you're looking for rapidity and how, how quickly you can get to market. So I would be looking at a language like that. I think there's a few interesting ones. And the question then is also, can you build a team around it? So interesting languages, Generally, I would sort of say React with Golang are sort of like the, the perfect combination of both front end and back end, um, highly performant. And that would probably actually be my selection. I know you said one. Um, if it was a couple of years ago, I would probably pick Ruby on Rails as an MVC, generally uh, um, sufficiently good enough to go fast. Most people can, if you're not familiar with it, can pick it up, has enough sort of back end ORM stuff to sort of get you moving quickly on a startup. Um, but again, I think Golang and React as a combination is actually the right, the right good portfolio uh, to start a company on. Yeah, it's it's such a tough uh, decision because I see, you know, at the end of the day, you should go with what you know. I, I see that being yeah. the most common. But you know, the Ruby on Rails, fast, quick, reliable, but inevitably series B, C, D, somewhere around there, you're going to yeah. be rewriting a big monolith. Uh, but if you can't even get to series C, what does it matter, right? So uh, where's yeah, that balance? I think, I think there's that argument too. And I think that's one of the things that I've spent a lot of my career, you know, I, I move a lot of companies off of monolithic systems into services-oriented architecture. So certainly React Golang is, is more amenable to the long-term future, but to your point, like if you can't build a company and quickly get signal and prove that there's something there, then you know you got to be really careful with the the, the choice of your technology. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. Ruby on Rails totally. is is a very very reliable stack to pick. It's maybe not very um, can I say sexy? It's certainly not very <laughs> glorious or it, yeah. it doesn't have a, a lot of cachet. I think, but at the same point, it's a it's a pretty solid framework. Yeah, I would yeah. generally be trying to look at something that lets me go quickly. Um, than trying to get something perfect. But you have to recognize the tech debt that you're gonna incur by making some of those decisions. Totally, totally. If you were meant to, uh, if you were to be mentored by a business or technology leader, current or past, who would it be and why? This is a really interesting one. I, I don't normally you know, look to people in the industry I, you know, I'm not a big sports ball fan. You know, I don't, I'm final sports. I normally don't idolize um, individuals per se. I tend to look at accomplishments. So I'm like one of those weird people who've never sort of said, I wish I was like so-and-so when I would grow up. But I would mm -hmm. say if I had to pick someone who I've actually really admired and in, in what I feel like has been a, a, a palpable change at a company that I've also worked at is Satya at Microsoft. And I don't say that lightly. I, I think the 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 vision that he's showing at the, at that company, along with just sort of the change in culture, um, yeah. has been pretty astounding. And so I think in terms of like very effective leadership, and because he, he does appear to focus on things that 
really resonate with me. Um, right around that psychological safety and high performing teams and um, high emotional intelligence as a whole as a leader, along with being, I think, a, a great thought leader for the company. Uh, I think he's a really good leader, at least from the outside. Granted, <laughs> I'm not inside Microsoft, so all bets off kind of thing. But I would imagine if even he's half of what I imagine to be, he'd be a really good leader to uh, learn from and mentor, be mentored from. Yeah, I mean, terrific answer. Somebody who was uh, born and raised right in off 148 there in Redmond, myself, uh, the changes. And there's been some incredible podcasts. I, I know GeekWire just uh, let one out the other day, um, kind of discussing and looking over the, the history of it. And obviously can't can't argue with the stock price. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, love, I love that pick. What about books? Uh, are you a big reader? And, and if so, um, any books that have really impacted you throughout your career? Ooh, there has been a few books. Um, I think of David Piper's um, The Little Engine That Could. It was probably the first book that I read as a child. Um, I think I can, I think I think can. I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I know I can. And I read that voraciously um, as a child. And I, I, <laughs> I joke that I probably ate it um, and consumed one whole book physically just to sort of like internalize it. And uh, I, that was pretty transformative about something I talk a lot with my teams about. I always look at everything as an opportunity mm-hmm. and to never, to never not believe in yourself. So it's that turning lemons into lemonade kind of attitude that is as trade as it might be, that was a pretty, pretty uh, impactful book in, in my life. I think other books, um, there's probably a few others, but even Nonviolent Communications was a pretty um, eye-opening book because it wasn't about not yelling at people. It was about learning how to communicate in a way that's learning how to listen and stay centered to your, and true to yourself while it's allowing the other individual to stay true to themselves. So like if you and I could have this conversation yelling at each other, that's normal conversation. That isn't violent conversation. If I make, if I have a, if I make a statement right now, no matter how I say it, if it makes you not feel, makes you feel less Elbert than you, mm. you know, 100% Elbert, then I've sort of produced a, a violent communications. I pushed you away from your center. And so understanding that, um, I used to have a very sort of facile understanding of communications and nonviolent communications. As long as like my voice is calm and I'm not yelling right. at you, somehow right. I'm having, you know, a good conversation. And, and it's really, <laughs> that's not the case. The case is, you know, do I really understand you and what motivates you and, and allows you to sort of feel a whole person in this conversation and make sure that I'm not sacrificing myself and creating a codependency where I'm sacrificing my sense of identity and self-worth in order to make you feel have self-worth and have identity. So that was another one that I think has been, um, it's hard to understate how powerful that book was for me in terms of philosophy, especially later in life. It's probably the two ones that I'll pick that are not in the listener's normal um, library well, these are, that they might think about, but uh, these are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, empathetic communication. I think the, what I've learned uh, doing this podcast and, and just being in the recruiting industry is that especially at the executive leadership role, I mean, you could throw some of the technical chat out the window, you know, that that's such a small portion of the day. It, it's uh, a lot of what you're talking about here. And I'm always surprised uh, dealing with such software engineering, hardcore coding algorithms uh, on a daily basis that, that that's important, but from a leadership standpoint, uh, only a piece. 
if you if you think about it, I know that this is maybe us going a little bit deep into the rabbit hole for a moment. Um, let me know no, if you good. want to pause. Yeah, no, this is good. If you, I've done almost every job underneath me at, at some degree professionally. I've been a product manager. I've worked in design. I've been an engineer. Large portion of that. I've worked at um, data at scale. So you know, doing uh, analysis, computer science, or data science. Um, they're all hard jobs. I won't won't say that any one is somehow harder than the other, but that's not the hardest thing that we do in technology, right? The technology isn't the hard part. It's getting the technologists to work together collaboratively <laughs> to work on the technology. That's a hard part because we're all humans. So we have not only our human frailties and miscommunications, but because we're specialists in our own right, part of my job as a leader is to help bring the vision so that we all have one shared vision. That's the hardest part is learning how to communicate, learning how to collaborate, learning how to compromise. The technology, yes, is hard, but it always has to be in service of a human problem. And it has to be rendered, provided by other humans. And so when we forget that, when we get sort of mired in the, you know, the patentability of the technology or like the, 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 the five nines to six five. nines yeah like that that's that's intellectually interesting things and it's to your sort of point before it's 20 percent of the problem 80 percent of the problem is just humans being humans and and that also can be the joy of the leadership but i think that's where i think um it you know where i think a lot of people misunderstand the role of uh, especially a c leader um, but any leader especially a cto where they sort of imagine the ctos is that very prototypical geek who only worries about code and sees code everywhere and sleeps in code and speaks in code. And, and I've met uh, one or two of those kinds of CTOs and there's definitely that kind of role for a CTO, but they're actually, that's not in my experience, the norm. That's actually the exception to the rule. The, the most CTOs are way more focused on um, understanding psychology. And I would almost argue you might be better served by having a minor or some focus on psychology um, on top of your computer science if you're really interested in becoming in psychological behavior um, of groups. If you're really interested in being an executive. Yeah. Because you Very eventually have, you have to learn psychology. Um, yeah. Being yeah. An executive. 100%. So last, last rapid fire question. What, uh, What's the most surprising thing about you that somebody wouldn't see on, on your resume or LinkedIn profile? Um, I would say that I exist on this spectrum as autistic. So I don't think most people realize that I am autistic. Um, I do pass as neurotypical on most good days. <laughs> on a bad day or a bad moment, I probably my autism sort of shows, but I've spent a good 20 or 30 years working on um, my behavioral norms. So that's definitely a piece that I think most people are a little surprised, if not outright shocked, uh, the first time they meet me, especially as a, especially as a leader of people in a large organization. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm excited to do, I get into that piece a little bit more here in a bit. But, it, you know, help, uh, help lay the foundation. Uh, you know, were you always into tech or what was the childhood like, like to foster this <laughs> aeronautical computer science publicly traded or at least with real self, you know, hopefully soon to be CTO? What, what was that uh, foundation like? My, 
I grew up around technology, so that was definitely a fact. My father um, was a, an engineer who worked at Kodak and then at a little medical company that um, only recently got bought for about $2.2 billion, but um, well challenged. Some change. So, just, you know, a little bit of change there. But, um, but you know, we, we had computers from as early as I can think of as we had a we had an Apple computer in the house, I think as early as five. So I was programming by the time I was age five. So I'm almost 50 years old. So you can imagine that was some, you know, let's say 45 years ago um, that I was working on a computer. And at the time, I didn't know the difference between basic and assembly because I was just learning computers. So I was sort of working in a bunch of different languages. At, at, you know, there wasn't nearly as the amount of abstraction. So I had to get pretty deep into the computers, you know, like I guess at five, six, seven. So to me, computers were always just a tool. They were never sort of, which was sort of interesting as sort of how I never pursued computer science um, in my studies, at least for undergraduate. And I only sort of went back to get my master's in, in engineering um, later at Seattle U, uh, largely just because um, I needed some accreditation to prove that I knew about computers just because I've been working on them for so long. But so, yeah, so I, I grew up, I grew up with that. And then my father, my, my father had another twist. Computers were productivity tools. They were not toys. They weren't games. So I, I literally couldn't play games on our computer. I had to program them. So actually in early years, I was programming. I wouldn't say they were particularly fun games. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I learned, I, you know, if I wanted to play a game, I had to write it. I write a video game. And so I spent a lot of my time using computers because I was really into astronomy and astrophysics. That was sort of my my trajectory for for probably the first 20, almost 30 years of my life was to go into astrophysics um, and orbital mechanics. And I really wanted to work at Jet Propulsion Laboratories down in Pasadena at mm -hmm. JPL. And uh, I was going to get my PhD and all that. And so I was using computers to, to calculate the orbits of of planets and figuring out um, satellite, you know, how do, how do you think about solar cells and orbit them between planets and the rest of that. I was trying to solve those kinds of problems, you know, in my my early teens um, up through undergrad and for a while there until I sort of pivoted. Right. And so uh, you went into Purdue right off the bat, kind of this vision of aerospace, aeronautical uh, engineering, spent a few years, uh, years there. Tell me a little bit about this um, transition and, and moving over to uh, Buffalo with the Asian Studies minor. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, my father was part of Rotary. And so one of the things that we always had in our, in our homes was um, students from foreign lands. And so oh, when cool. I graduated high school, I became a Rotary um, foreign exchange student and I went to Japan, which I really thought was going to be a one-year stint between high school and college. It was really going to allow me to just sort of travel for a year. I didn't really think it was going to be as transformative as it was. So went to Japan, ended up picking up the language sort of like you would natively, just listening. Um, for me, Japanese looks like a lot of like mathematical equations in my head that I'm just solving simultaneously a bunch of algebraic equations. So probably the math and my visual learner sort of just was able to pick up that language and ended up going back to Purdue. And because Purdue um, was as regimented as it was, it's a great engineering school, don't get me wrong, but I really wanted to study aerospace and Japanese and mm -hmm. um, I was paying my way through school. So it was a lot of money. Part of the reason why I got there is because they had an amazing um, program in orbital mechanics. And so I was actually sort of really already in high school trying to figure out 
which universities would help me get to that aforementioned JPL. And when Purdue just was adamant that I couldn't study what I wanted and I was spending a lot of money as an out-of-stater to be at Purdue, I called up Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo um, late in the summer and sort of said, hey, I know you have aerospace engineering. I really want to take um, some Japanese studies. And I knew, I knew because I had looked at all the universities. Most of the universities use exactly the same textbooks. Like the, the dirty little secret of undergrad is a lot of your engineering courses are using the same curriculum, the mm -hmm. same textbooks. And as an autodidactic person who basically is just going to learn what he's going to learn anyways, I just needed access to information. I didn't necessarily find like the campus that I was on was going to open or close um, my educational opportunities. And so Buffalo basically had a very similar curriculum to Purdue and for significantly less amount of money. Again, I was yeah. paying for, for most of this. So I just quickly changed over and uh, Buffalo happens to be sister cities with the, 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 the town, the city I lived in Japan and in uh, Ishikawa uh, prefecture oh, wow. in, in Kanazawa. So I was able to go back to Japan again um, on that scholarship instead of going with NSA, which I think was a good choice. Um, a lot of weird little things in there. Uh, NSA wanted to send me back to Japan too, but then you sort of end up working for for security, and that wasn't something I was uh, uh, interested in. That really closes off some opportunities if you if you do that. So um, stuck with Buffalo, and then came out to Seattle, and worked at University of Washington, and did dual masters in in computational fluid dynamics and technical Japanese. So rewrite speed. And that moves. Yeah, yeah. That, did that translate directly to the first role at Boeing? And and so when yeah. did you make that jump from computational fluid dynamics to writing code? I, I, I'm not even going to guess what language it was. Uh... It was just Fortran. Okay. <laughs> Nothing okay. exciting. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. When I was at when I was at Buffalo um, for the last year, year and a half, I worked at Kubrick, which uh, was a uh, which was a laboratory doing hypersonic shock tunnels. So. Um, I built out a big electric magnet to get to a couple Tesla. We were looking at um, the flow, the the, the uh, magnetic, the electrically conducting flow around um, a bluff body at high uh, velocity, Mach 15 to Mach 25. So these were physical devices that would shoot, you know, I wouldn't say air, but they shoot, shoot gas down on an object. And then we had a magnet there and... Uh, you get very high velocities, a lot of high energy. And so I built that physical one. I went and did that, then wrote the, the digital simulations for that in the computer and ran them on supercomputers and our own uh, clustering that we had built over at University of Washington. And also, like I said, um, so I was, I was still pursuing my doctorates in aerospace and was still very much interested in that. But I was also pursuing um, a full additional master's degree in um, technical Japanese so I could read, write, and speak at an engineering level. So it's somewhere in, in that. And I went back to Japan for a third time and worked there, um, interestingly, in an automotive industry on air conditioners. But I was there to help them. Just It was an opportunity as part of the program. I just really realized I wanted to become a technical liaison in, with, between Japan and the US. And as an aerospace engineer background, one of the obvious employers for that was Boeing. So I thought at the time, if I left the program, I could really pursue and double down on this technical liaison between US and Japan and the aerospace industry. And Boeing seemed like the natural bridge for that. So at some point, the wanting to pursue JPL, um, I even interviewed with, with 
with NASA to work on their X-38 program, which was a winged um, manless program. And even as a like a instructor for astronauts down in Houston, but my my real love and passion was the the Japanese, and that was the closest. And the the astronauts would have been a good opportunity. I would have worked with the Japanese astronauts, but um, Boeing just made a lot more sense, and so I, I went over to that. Um, it didn't quite materialize. I want you know that's why I'm here, but you know that's life yeah, too. Yeah. We all grow and change. You, you're, I'm sure you're doing all right. Uh, you've been able to do some some big <laughs> things. I'm I'm personally really curious. I mean, what almost ten years at Am seven, eight, nine uh, years at, at Amazon. I think a lot of people look at at your progression and from a software engineer to a senior director in the span of eight years of a publicly traded company. Talk to you know the senior software engineers, maybe a line manager. Um, talk to me about your promotion track. I, that, I wouldn't say that that meteoric rise is, is common in such big companies. And what do you think contributed to that? Probably reset the the record here. I did not become. Um, I wasn't a director. I wasn't leading people until I left Amazon and left Microsoft. So I was. I, I think it's a more interesting story because. I I took a very circuitous route. You know, there's there's sort of to sort of set the stage. There's sort of like three kinds of paths that people can take. Most people sort of think of like IC, like an individual contributors. You're just going to come in, you're going to be an engineer, and you're going to retire as like a distinguished engineer, right? Yeah. Or the other one is like, hey, I'm going to come in as an IC, and at some point I'm going to become a people leader, you know, first line manager, and I'm just going to do that meteoric rise up to executive ranks. You know, um, the the more more likely path and the path that I took because of my interest is I sort of bounced around. I sort of did a lot of lateral moves um, through software engineering to technical program manager to program product manager. Um, and then finally, when I left um, Amazon and I was looking to do remote, that's when I started looking at the opportunities for either going principal engineer. I was really thinking, okay, I'm just going to work um, as a principal engineer and I'm just going to write code from home. Uh, which I really thought was going to be sort of my return back into engineering from being product manager. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden these op this opportunity to become a director of engineering occurred. And I had to build a team from zero to 30 in about a year. Um, and so that was Sears Home Services. So that was really, really interesting opportunities. I got to work with some of my old folks that I had worked with at Amazon um, that helped men mentor me and, you know, at Amazon Fresh. And to do something I didn't think um, I'd ever get a chance to do at remote because at this time, remote was largely like an IC, an individual yeah, contributor's opportunity and really not people leadership. Um, but the folks there were completely fine with me being 100% remote. So I double clicked onto that. And then that's when my career, ironically enough, is really took off from a verticality perspective right. in terms of like director to senior director to VP to CTO, then CTO again. Um, and then CP, CTO with sort of like a much broader um, inclusive of product, like where I'm at at real self. So that's that's the interesting piece. So the, the 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 bit of it I would sort of say is like if you talked to me when I was at Boeing for the, the first seven years, I was adamant I was going to be like a CTO, you know, at a company. But the version of, the, of CTO that I am today versus the version that I thought, which is 15 almost 20 years ago now, um, very very vastly different. Mm. Like the I didn't understand how little it sort of. Your fate and your destiny come from the same place. They come from your ignorance. They come from the things you don't know you don't know. And the difference between your fate and your destiny is whether you're going to shine a light on there or not. If you don't shine a light, 
that is going to be your fate. It's just gonna, it's just gonna happen to you, right? Yeah. If you shine a light and you keep on learning and growing and digging into what do I what don't I know I don't know, that turns into your destiny. And so that's the that's the difference is just choice. Whether you want to have free will and ha and have a say in what is going to be uh, your fate and turn it into destiny, then dig in. So I just didn't know, like in some ways, like definitely my destiny and fate were out in the CTO, but I just had no idea what it was to be a CTO. I had no idea that I had to really work on myself. I would I would say earlier in my career, I was not necessarily a, well, humble's a little hard to sort of say. Am I humble today? Probably not per se, but like I was certainly. Um, you know, I have a lot of confidence in myself. I don't think anyone yeah. would ever sort of say that I, I lack for confidence, but, you know. Um, Driving you know, hard, I, high expectations, short terms. And, and yeah, and I, I didn't, I wasn't compassionate to people around me. I didn't understand what motivated them. Um, I was very selfish. I was very focused on like, everyone must be like me and push, push, push and drive, drive, drive and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And uh, I wouldn't want to work for me. You know, like I would say, no, thank you. Um, if I were to meet the, the younger version of me. And so I had to really spend the years learning how to be much more focused on people. And and I, honestly, being a program or product manager really fo fo focused me on learning influence, right? I think most people believe incorrectly that leadership gives you authority. It does not. It gives you accountability, of that. And through that accountability, you have to learn how to influence others. When you rely on and on your authority, which yes, it implicitly comes with the role due to the power structure and dynamics that people need to report to you. And ultimately you get to decide their fate at some level, whether they work or not work at your company, right? That gives you some authority. But when you leverage that, that's actually a failure of your leadership, right? And I always tell folks, if I have to like come in and tell you what to do, one of the first things I do, we do these COEs, these, these celebrations of errors, I sort of do my own like internal diagnostic. Like, how did I set this person up for failure such that I had I couldn't get them through influence and I didn't set them up for success through other upstream communications that I instead had to step into their area and go, whoa, 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 I don't want you to do X, I want you to do Y, you will do Y, right? When I do that, my opinion is I have somehow failed them upstream previous to this this conversation and that means i'm relying on authority to sort of like dive and save when in, instead influence so anyways my point being is because i didn't have people reporting to me for so many years i really learned the art of influence which is really getting into the shoes of the other person and building empathy which as a person with autism empathy doesn't come naturally so i had to really think like why does this person want to do these things that i'm asking them to do because they're not going to do it because i tell them to do it because they don't report to me i have to like convince them you know that this is the most exciting thing that they're going to support me on you know especially when i was like at amazon working on amazon tote and some of those programs yeah, or at xbox yeah. helping launch xbox one you know, I had to rely significantly on influence to get the editorial team and the console team to come along for the ride and want to join on the vision. Um, and I think that's one of the things I always, always emphasize for people is recognize as your career grows, it's always going to be more and more influence. Um, if you're relying on authority, I think you're doing it wrong. Yeah, that uh, you've got my mind going and uh, self-checking myself and going through that laundry list of you know, how can I, how can I be a more empathetic leader? That's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping tonight. Uh, <laughs> what's, uh, what's the most common misconception of the CTO job? 
most common, I think it's that, again, it sort of goes back to the previous conversation. I think it, like, I don't watch much of Silicon Valley, I will admit, but for a TV show, like it's almost too close to home. Right. But I think it's a little bit of this belief that CTOs are the, the, the geekiest, smartest person in the world, the most technologically savvy person in the room. That might be in certain instances, especially at start, like really, really early stage startups where they might've been the, the brainchild for a particular idea. But I think reality is the CTOs are oftentimes, like I think the, the best CTOs are the ones who, yeah, we can, we can read the landscape of technology pretty quickly, but like what our job is to just help other people make really informed, good decisions. So we have really great pattern recognition. And I think that's what surprises people is, you know, I don't pretend to, be the sharpest programmer at, you know, at my company anymore, nor, nor should I. I think I'd actually be a failure as a CTO if, if like everything had to go through me and you know, sort of like if yeah. Ward doesn't write the code, you know, we might not get it done, but you know, kind of thing. Like that's, that's a recipe for failure, right? Because you need a single point of failure um, is going through you. So it's really, I think that's what I think most people are surprised by is I think the best CTOs don't really focus on the technology, but the application of the technology and do that through means of really understanding their people. Because if you think about for most companies, especially technology companies, some of the biggest organizations with the, the most varied discipline, as I noted in you know, previous conversation, is technology. And it's a lot of people. And if you don't understand your people, like no matter how great the idea is or the underlying technology, if you can't get people to actually execute on it. It doesn't matter. So, Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think that rolls in perfectly to you know one of the major conversational pieces that i wanted to have with you today was around building a remote team with a focus yes. on culture i think you know a lot of companies uh, ours included you know was a a majority in the office and you'd build your processes and culture around a lot of those aspects and so what is your philosophy or maybe you have a framework or approach to leading a remote team? Yeah, I mean, I, the interesting thing is, and, and I mean this gently, but I, but I think a lot of people assume that somehow leadership in a remote setting is different than leadership in an office setting. Like leadership, the fundamentals, the principles, right? The underlying philosophy does not change. Some of the base mechanics change. But like fundamentally, if you're a good leader in office, if you can learn the new mechanics for remote, then you will be a good leader. Like th those things don't change, right? Like, like a great boss in the office is going to be a great boss in remote if they learn how to connect and communicate. So that's the first piece. I think um, this may be self-evident and obvious, but I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, we're not like geared to be remote. Like, do you have great leaders now? Well, yeah. But then you're ready to do remote. You just got the, you know, the rules of the road are slightly different. The biggest difference in office, what I would say, my observation is offices provide you some very organic forms of rhythms of the business that you now need to be explicit about when you're remote. And what I mean by this, imagine you and I are in the office. You and I don't have to schedule conversations a lot of little conversations can happen like hey Albert, are you going to coffee let me, yeah. let me well, let me walk along with you and have a quick conversation right it's not on our schedule we just happen to be going and spending a little bit of time i get to learn a little bit about you you get to learn a little bit about me we talk a little bit about business you know maybe a, a small decision or like hey we definitely should get the team together on this right all that sort of rhythm of the business happens very organically people walk by people get up 
people go together, they go to lunch, they talk a little bit about work, each other. So there's a lot of things that happen in the office that you don't have to add into your, your cognitive conscious brain. Um, just it's a it's a great a great setting or environment for those kinds of things things that still have to happen remotely, but now someone has to think about it, right? Intentionality. To, yeah, that intentionality. Yeah, yeah, that's a great word. Yeah. Intentionality, which I would sort of say is the discipline of, of working remote. Okay, when am I going to have those meetings? When I'm going to make sure that I'm having one on ones with nearly everyone in my organization, right? Because I can't afford to just hope that I'm going to randomly. You know, it's because that's not going to happen. I'm not going to have one-on-ones with, you know, the interns and, and the and the SD1s and SD2s and, and the and the new designer and the new product person. But I don't make a point to at least find, you know, randomly select people and go out and reach them. So I have to make sure that's in part of my 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 calendar. And then not all our meetings can be agenda-driven only, right? Like because we don't get to have the coffee hours and the, the lunch times with each other anymore. So meetings need to be, you know, sort of sandwiched between, hey, how you doing? And you know, what did you do this weekend? And you know, what are you looking forward to the weekend? Um, and getting to know each other on top of, you know, especially in longer meetings where you're also sort of talking about the business. So you have to learn that there's these things that don't change, like human needs don't change, but whereas the office just naturally gave it to you, you now have to be much more cognizant of it. And that's the hard part, I think, is for people who've maybe worked in the office for so long, they've gotten so many things for free, they don't even, it's not a, it's not a critique of them, they're just not conscious of all the things they sort of need to be a leader um, remotely. And on top of learning how to like turn off from work, again, you right. drive into the office, office brain, you yeah, know, I yeah. go up the elevator, I'm walking in, I now know that, you know, largely I'm going to be focused here versus I work from home. You know, this is the same place. I do artwork, I read books, I play video games. You know, my wife, you know, is out on the other side with our Great Danes, you know, like life's going to interrupt way more yeah. easily, way more fluidly um, than, than before. So how do I sort of separate those and make sure that I have some kind of, you know, whether people like the word work-life balance or what have you, you know, like, how do you, how do you balance those things? How do I make sure I'm making time to go exercise and go for a walk versus, you know, before, like every time I had to walk to the bus and whether I realized that that was giving me a little bit of exercise and a little bit of time just to decompress, you know, even waiting for the bus is time to decompress, you know? Um, so I think that, that intentionality, I really like that word. I might, I might use that again. Steal it away. It's a, it's Steal it word. away. I, I yeah. found uh, my reading, at least when things first started, my uh, quantity of reading hours plummeted because that commute to and from. And, yeah. and then, you know, with wife and kids and work and every aspect of life, you know, by 1030, it's, you know, lights out. And so um, yeah. I've had to work on that. Do you have any hacks like, you know, quick hack uh, that you found that that works well, creating those uh, divisions in life, which I think ultimately just improve performance because it's obviously been shown 12, 14 hour workdays, uh, diminishing returns. Yeah, yeah, definitely diminishing. I mean, I've actually done my own studies on my teams at, at, at Boeing. Mm. Uh, and I know for a fact, after about 45, 50 hours, you start going backwards in terms of productivity, literally backwards. Wow. The, the amount of code that, you know, like from a quality and from a lines of code, you would end up just putting in more defects faster than you could actually take them out kind of thing. Um, that said, so quick hacks, uh, you know, things, every person is different, but finding to create some some mental separation between work and mental and physical sometimes and, and temporal. So there's a couple of things 
it's a little harder in COVID right now because not everyone can just go off. But like, if you can walk out, some people will walk out the door. First thing they do in the morning, they'll have their breakfast, blah, blah, blah. They'll go walk. Even if it's just like down, down the driveway, spend five minutes listening to a podcast and then come back in. Like they're now like entering, they sort of left the house and they're now entering in the, into their office building, right? Like mentally, yes, same physical location, but right. It's what you're trying to do is sort of, okay, this is where work begins and ends. And then at the end of the day, they'll do the same thing. They'll sort of get up, leave the location, go out for five, 10, 15 minutes, walk around the block, you know, once or twice, and then come back in and sort of go, okay, I'm sort of done with work. I am now home. You know, this, this physical location has now emotionally, intellectually, you know, transformed into home setting. Obviously it's a, it's a privilege, but if you can having physical separation from, you know, if you can have a dedicated space for some people, that's really important, like an office, I get that that's not always feasible for folks, but that's, that's another good one that obviously lends itself. I think the third piece, especially in COVID, I remind a lot of people of this, working from home is, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to work from home. Right, you know, as cafes and libraries reopen, um, you can work in other locations. It's really working from home is really a nod towards flexibility and right. you picking the time and the place that works for you. Now, when people were for, for, forced home, literally, and couldn't go anywhere else, yes, their introduction to remote work was a horrible way to get uh, it. Abrupt, yeah, it's yeah. abrupt. It's it's not actually realistic to how you'd want it sustainable. And plus they might have their partner who's also working from home. And if they have children, now they have, you know, one, two, three, four children all sharing the same physical location, the same network, you know, may not have enough computers now. All of a sudden, you know, all those problems and you become like the home IT person mm-hmm. or your, your partner does, you know, or you know, what have you. And so those are a lot of things that don't wreck it, you know. Uh, don't represent normalcy from working from home. But those are, I think the hacks are just trying to create some separations for you, yeah. where yeah. those are. So you're bringing I up some uh... schedule stuff. And I just like, hey, yeah. folks, and I, and I, and I've learned not to be apologetic about life. I think a I lot of people that. get apologetic. Like, I got chores, you know, like I, I feed our great things every morning, like from seven to seven 30. Like, I really can't do meetings during that time. Like, can't, sorry. It's just, going to be what it's going to be if you need me earlier then you got to call me much earlier and by the way i don't get i don't want to get up that early and be honest it's like, <laughs> i'll do it occasionally don't get me wrong like I'm, I'm flexible in the sense of like but i'm not going to allow a regular meeting i sort of say nope those are my boundaries like these are reasonable hours i sort of like really start meetings you know nine o'clock in the morning and you know i'll, I'll do an eight o'clock in the morning or eight thirty, like as one-offs but i won't ever set regular meetings um, yeah. or you know i go see an acupuncturist you know and it's on my calendar and you know Every other week, on a Thursday, gotta work around I'm it. gone, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, if you need meetings, if it's really important, let's work around it. But like, I'm not gonna just keep it because otherwise, you just keep on making the compromises. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, 100%. for this meeting, that you, you don't have a life again. Um, so, yeah. do what you yeah. need to do. You know, awesome. One of the last areas I wanted to talk about being in the recruiting sector um, is how you've built teams. And maybe you can give just a quick snapshot. You've obviously built uh, teams at Varsity Tutors. And, and I'm thinking a lot of the uh, listening audience is in that startup venture-backed community. And so uh, obviously Amazon has thousands of recruiters, uh, but maybe focusing more on, on, on uh, real self and Varsity Tutors. 
in the world of, I don't know how you did, David Berth Goliath, you know, the, the Amazons and Facebooks and the offers that they're putting together, how have you approached recruiting for a company like RealSelf? I think be realistic about what you offer and understand where you stand head and shoulders above them and believe, you know, believe in your culture. So I believe culture wins out, you know, will eat anything else day in, day out. If you don't have a great culture and we hire for culture, I, I feel like technical skills are table stakes um, at the companies. So yes, you should understand, you should be sufficiently um, versed in the technology that we're using for the level of expectation. So if you're, you know, if you're an entry level person, obviously we're gonna have lower expectations of you, but if you're a senior person and we're bringing you in as an SD3, SD4, you know, senior engineer, you, you need to minimally meet those bars. But like, that's yeah. just like, that sort of cracks the door open. <laughs> And what gets you sort of the rest of the way through is really your ability to um, connect uh, with the rest of the organization. So we really focus on collaboration and communication skills. How we attract people is really focused on that. You can actually go to, anyone listening to this can get this, and I'm happy if they, they email me, I'll send the link, but it's it's just bit.ly, you know, bit.ly forward slash leading the real self way with hyphens in there. So leading hyphen uh, the hyphen real self hyphen way. Um, and that's about eight hours worth of video instruction that we give to all our first time people managers around culture and mass off hierarchy and psychological um, safety and how we get high performing teams by, by doing those things. And I spent a lot of time like in the recruiting, like sharing that with folks, like this is how we behave. We have your, we have we have pretty comprehensive career leveling and development at the company too. And so we focus on that, you know, try to help people understand why they, so there's the mission and the vision, right? That's, I think that's given like each company is going to be, have a very specific mission and vision that you want people connected to and want to come to like, we're here to transform the consumer journey around um, surgical and even non-surgical um, changes to their aesthetic self. So we want people to really engage with that. But on top of that is, we have a career for you. Like we know how to grow you. You're not going to just come here and write code. Like if you want to grow your career, even as a, as a people manager, we know how to help you. You know, whether we have opportunities for that, that's a different conversation, right? But we can help you get the, the requisite skills so that, you know, in a few years as opportunities expose, you know, present themselves, you know, we promote from within um, pretty aggressively. So we, we talk about those kinds of things, you know, and, you know, there are, there are things you cannot, I can't compete against the Amazon in terms of like the cornucopia, cornucopia, cornucopia <laughs> um, of, of like different technologies you could potentially work on. Like it's, it's impossible to compete against that. So like realistically speaking, you know, someone's really looking in their career to work on like the deepest part of this, the tech stack, or they want to, they want to touch every version of the tech stack. And that's what they're really focused on as a technologist. I would argue, Hey, we're not probably the right and best company for you. And I would even tell you in an interview, like, I don't think you're going to be happy with this, but if you're really looking to understand how to apply technology and do so in a, in a very supportive collaborative environment and be a part of that journey and know that we have your back too, and we're going to grow your career, then we're an amazing place to work for. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of the conversation is just know who you are. And, and I always tell people to take it or leave it. Like I am a certain kind of leader. Um, I think I'm a, I think I'm a good leader to, to work for or work with, but you know, I might not be your cup of tea for lack of a better word. And that's okay yeah. too. Like, you know, yeah. I, you know, and I, I think, I think people forget that like there's nothing wrong. Like the worst is actually 
fooling someone into coming to work for your company and then they resenting you after three to six mm -hmm. months because that's just wasted effort and time. It's also toxicity, you know, as they come in and they sort of leave and they bounce and everyone's like, oh, I didn't, you know, like those are things don't, it's better to say no and have people say no to you than to sort of be lower the bar and, and let anyone in. Um, and same on the flip side, if you're looking for a company, just working for any company to work for any company, I think that's the worst advice you can give someone. Like you should go work for companies that really, you know, resonate with what you need out of life. Now it does require you as a candidate to really know what you want. Yeah, and, be introspective. You know, so you have to be introspective. And that's that's the thing that I tell everyone. That's something we really focus on. So you've heard me mention Maslow hierarchy. Um, a quick refresher, that's that's all about um, people's needs are satiated in a very um, gated fashion. And if you don't first manage your physical needs, then either higher order needs cannot be met. As an example, like you and I might be talking about where you're going to be in 10 or 15 years from now. Let's say we're talking about your retirement and then poof, there's a fire in the house, right? And we're, we're cohabitating that house. You're not going to be worrying about your retirement plans at that moment. Like you're going to be worrying about getting the safety, right? So you drop down in your mass in the mass of hierarchy very quickly based on context. And if you understand that then, and you understand that it's first physical and it's psychological, and then we get into self-awareness and self-actualization, guess what? When you treat employees in a manner where they're really focused on whether they have a job or not, or whether they can afford to live where they're going to live, then you're asking them to actually operate at the physical needs level and not at their psychological needs. And the psychological is where you unlock their, their heart and their brain. So, you know, there's a lot around that. So, that's that's why I keep on coming back to psychological safety. But if you look at the top of that pyramid, it's self-awareness. It's two things. It's self-awareness and self-actualization. They need to be two separate things because most people conflate self-actualization with self-awareness. They are not the same thing. One is oh. understanding there's a door in front of me I need to go through. And self-actualization is actually stepping forward, turning the knob and stepping through it. Right? Those are two separate skills that you need to develop in yourself. And then as a, as a people leader, you need to be able to do the exact same thing, but for other people, right? Mm -hmm. So EQ, really high, highly um, emotionally intelligent people are both very aware of themselves. They sort of know where they are in any moment. They sort of know what their, their emotional and their physical needs are, and they make sure they don't react to them, but they interact to them. And then they know how to change their behaviors or change their environment based on where they want to be. Right. So someone might say something that really triggers you and you're sort of your first right response might be anger. Right. And anger right. might just come out as let me yell at you. Right. That's a but a more a more <laughs> I want to be careful of the words I say a person who's more self-aware and self-actualized would go, hey, Albert, that, that really upset me. I'm, I'm a little upset right now. Could you tell me why you said what you said? Right. Like I'm allowing myself to feel the anger but I'm not allowed to control my, my response to you. Response, Instead, I'm yeah. using it to inform how I'm going to, I'm going to interact with you next. And I can double click into that. And I'm transparent, like, hey, and you might be like, oh, I didn't, oh, did I really say something to upset you? I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it this way. And you're like, oh, okay, that's good to know, right? And now we also, we've moved away versus had I just reacted and like, Albert, and then you're like, Ward. And then we, you know, we devolve into a horrible, like, you know, yelling match. You know, if you if if anyone wants to know what's going to unlock their career and actually unlock their life potential, <laughs> they're one and the same. There's, there's there's other bits that I talk to my people about. Disabuse yourself of your professional versus your personal self. Just be you. Come to work fully authentic, right? 
warts and all. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Be super aware who you are and be super able to actualize who you want to be, right? So awareness helps you know where you're at. Actualization really helps you get to where you want to be. And as a people leader, then you need to develop exactly the same skills, but observe it in others and help mentor them and say, hey, I noticed in that meeting, you said X. I think what you're trying to say was why I think you lost your audience halfway through. Let's work on that, right? Like that's an example of a really good mentor. Um, and that's what I think part of people leadership is, is helping mentor and grow the leadership underneath you. Um, so that as the company grows, your leadership grows with you. And, and that's part of the job. So, and I, I always say, I'm, I'm, set, I'm always trying to set them up for success, even when I'm delivering hard news or saying, hey, I need you to work on this. It isn't from like, I'm upset with you. It's like, I want you to be successful. It's success that this company looks this way. You can step into that journey and grow, or you can step out and sort of say, hey, I don't agree with you, or I don't want to grow in that way. That's not who I want to become. And we have, that's a natural, like, okay, probably shouldn't be here anymore, but like, let's do that respectfully as adults. And then right. how do we set you up for success at the next company? You know, so you've gone on and now you have at least some awareness that this is not the, the thing you want to work on or the kind of company you want to be at. And that's, that's a gift, right? And we're also then working with a person, not working with a person who doesn't want to be here with us. Um, because I, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Is, and doing do you what want they're, to be where uh, you're at, working on the problems you want to work on? So, right, right. Yeah. One of our uh, common questions I always like to ask is Are you more driven to solving a problem or are you looking to work closer to the customer and building a product? Like, I'm always focused on solving the customer problem. It's like you have to first be effective before you can be efficient. And everyone sort of forgets that. Like, be effective, like, connect. Then the question is, how well do you connect, right? So effective, did I connect or not? That's somewhat binary, but you know, minimally, did I connect with a customer? Do I resonate with them? Then the question is, did I, do I resonate with them a little bit or a lot? That's an efficiency conversation. The hardest part of any business on the side is whether you're effective or not. Like Bezos used to quip, I'd rather have an ops or a cost problem rather than have a, a revenue problem, which we were sort of saying is like, it's really hard to find signal with customers. That's the really hard problem. That's magic. Once you have that and you sort of drive down your costs, that's, it's still difficult, but it's an order of magnitude easier than just trying to even know whether you're being effective or not and have any signal. So, and the same thing with your customers, it's the same thing with your employees. Like, are you connecting with them? Because if you're not, like, why be efficient? You're just going to polish uh, the proverbial thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. hundred percent. I feel like I already know the answer to this, but I want to let you answer it. I mean, what fuels you? You seem super passionate about people leadership. I know that you're writing your book and that you are diving deep into psychological uh, safe environments. I mean, what gets you up in the morning? That's a good question. I I think what I, I feel like this role for me is vocational in the way that I've never felt before in my other roles. So I started at a very young age. Like you would ask me, nine, 10, what am I going to do? PhD, orbital mechanics, JPL. Next year, PhD, yeah. orbital mechanics, JPL. Right to 18, 19, 20, 21. Like that was like, I was like laser focused on that as my career. And I've had some, I, you know, I've been on some amazing programs, worked with the 787 program, helped launch Xbox One, um, worked at Amazon, you know, helping get Amazon fresh and then Amazon, well, Amazon tote didn't get out the door, but uh, it was still an amazing, amazing program. But, you know, Amazon fresh, what I think nowadays everyone knows is national, you know, we were working on before it was. So I've worked on some really intellectually 
fun and interesting things that are that are sort of nationally internationally recognized and, and and so i've been a part of that it's fun to be a part of that but for me there is a certain amount of i want to be careful of the critique but i think te technology as a whole the way we run it is fairly unhealthy i don't think we build sustainable organizations and cultures at times it's and i've written on this before so it's not first time I've said this, but there is a, there is a um, culture of squeeze or be squeezed at certain companies and under certain leadership, which I really um, strongly disagree with. I get why people do that. It's one way up the mountain, the proverbial mountain and generating value, right? Like it's a very um, annuities based. Let me get as much value out of you in the shortest amount of time. And at some point I'm going to squeeze as much juice out of you over it as possible. And I'm just going to find another person. Yep. Right. So it's very annuity based. It's constantly just sort of grinding through people. And I think we need to recognize that we got to be building sustainable, durable companies that are great for our customers, but also for our employees and that they can grow with them. They can grow with the company and the company can grow with its employees. And so that's where you need to take more of an annuities base of like in the fullness of time, you and I are going to get to you know, a certain place with each other. And it's going to take me a little bit longer at times and it's going to take, it's more effort. I spend a lot more time growing and developing my employees, but I think that's the right investment because it has an impact not only on the, the customer and the consumer, but the employee and their families, right? Like if I'm squeezing you, right? Like you're going to go home, <laughs> right? And you're probably going to bring that toxicity into your home, right? And it has an impact on, on, on our children, that has an impact on our partners, that has an impact on our families, that has an impact on us. And we as a society pay for that in so many innumerable kinds of ways. So we have to remember that we, we live inside a society filled with people who are all interacting and how we treat each other inside and outside of work matters. And we can't just simply look to the, the, the almighty stock and go, well, I guess it's going up into the right and therefore I'm doing my job. No, you, that's only but one dimension of a multidimensional problem that you need to be evaluating. Yes, we should be generating more value for a for-profit company. If, you know, if we were publicly traded, I should be looking at our, you know, the, our stock in the markets that should be going up into the right. But I should also be looking at other things that we oftentimes don't measure, but are probably just as important, if not more important, to the long-term health of not only the company, our employees, but our society is how well are my employees engaged? How well do they feel like they're a part of the community? How, how are they engaged and bought into the vision that we have, right? How are they impacting positively and negatively the people around them, including their family, including their children? Right. Those are the kinds of things that I think as leaders, like we need to shoulder ourselves with and hold ourselves accountable to. And if you're only doing the stock, I think you're failing. Like, I think you don't know whether you're successful minimally. You, you just do not know. It's, it's a bit like IQ, like this over index on a single index, like IQ right. is in right. IQ. You can be great at IQ and still and all it just means you're really great at pattern recognition, mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. at, at operational work. It doesn't necessarily make you a very creative person. It's just one dimension. Is it, should you throw out that dimension of measurement? Possibly not, but to sort of say that somehow you have a high IQ and therefore you're smarter, better, or going to be more successful. We know that there's not a strong correlation to IQ with success. And right. I think 
you know, building a holistic, sustainable company and society, if you're only looking at the stock market, I think is a miss. Again, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think we're, we're too good at overly simplifying um, the lens at which we need to have to look as leaders upon the things that we're doing. That that's my vocation. So I, if you really ask me what my, my tombstone will see is that, yeah, I want to create, you know, the proverbial unicorn, right? Because I want to generate value. I think it's really important for VCs and the rest of the world go like, hey, there's a different way of operating that can still, you know, add to your bottom line. But I also want to have a diaspora of leadership from, from me who goes off to other companies and takes this different way of behaving, which is really much more human-centric based on psychological safety that delivers high-performing teams. And that become a new model for companies with and without technology to replicate. That's where my hope is, is that, you know, in 10 or 15 years, there'll be 20, 30, 100 companies that mentally can draw a line, you know, back to what we're trying to do here at RealSoft and how we, how we grow the company provide value to our, our shareholders and to our, you know, our customers, but also to our employees. Yeah. Ward, I, I'm blown away. You know, I think, uh, I know there, there's a book coming out, but I, I hear another two or three or four books in there uh, with, with, uh, with a big <laughs> probably, market. That's probably the problem I have. I have too much in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this was, this was phenomenal. Anything else uh, you, you want to comment um, real self, uh, any of the work you're doing in, in some of the nonprofit area? You know, I think minimally um, to all the listeners out there, I am very open to being reached out to and having conversations with you about any and all of this. So if any of this has touched you or you want to sort of double click, like I said, I can happy to send you links. I'm happy to spend, you know, an hour or two or a couple hours, you know, going pretty in depth on these conversations. So do not be afraid to reach out to me. Um, it's just Ward at realself.com is the easy way to reach out to me or find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think I'm pretty easy to find, but I am more than happy to talk to anyone who's interested on this, on these topics. So I'm very passionate about it. And if you're equally passionate or just at least minimally interested, I will, I will find time uh, in my day to talk to you about it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.